0: A couple of things today, um, first of all, um, I think it 's important to recognize that everybody knows this, but that um, last week, um, the voters in the state of Washington rejected fifty four percent to forty six percent a uh, proposal to legalize doctor assisted suicide for the terminally ill and uh Remember, this was called Initiative 119, the Death with Dignity um, Measure. Um, I think it's going to happen someday, but this was rejected, and um, it would have been the first in the United States legally sanctioning assisted suicide uh, by lethal injection of a deadly dose of pills, or a a deadly dose of pills. Um, And uh, this will be... uh, I think uh, part of the subject of our discussion today, in fact I know it will because uh, the Wenberg and and a number of the other things that I want to bring to you um, go into this. Uh, There were a number of medical ethics decisions made last week at election time uh, and uh, for example efforts to repeal homosexual rights ordinances uh, were defeated in both St. Paul, Minnesota and San Francisco um which of course are cities known for their tolerance of homosexuals. Uh, but measures to ensure homosexual rights failed in in a couple of smaller communities. Um, and in Washington State, residents um, are split on a measure to protect abortion rights, even if the Supreme Court overturns the Roe v. Wade decision, that's gonna be a big battle if they do overturn it, which I would find surprising, um, but if they did overturn it, then the states will be deciding um, whether to continue to protect abortion rights despite that federal mandate. So there's going to be a lot of interesting battles coming up. Did you have a vote tally that? Yeah. Um, it was. It was 654,000 to 648,000. So that's 50.2% to nine point eight percent That's what you call close. But you defeated, right? Yeah. You wonder uh, about democracy in those circumstances, don't you? you know, is it, is it possible that 0.2% of the people are right? <laughs> um, but anyway... Um, uh, the supporters of this Death with, with Dignity initiative um, include the Hemlock Society, um, various AIDS groups, um, the Grey Panthers, and the State Democratic Party of Washington, and some doctors. Um, they all called it a long overdue right. Uh, offering a reprieve to the terminally ill. But others, of course, the opponents said that the initiative threatened the traditional pact between patient and doctor and would have created a new class of permissible killing. And that's, of course, what we're going to discuss with the Wendberg here. Um, So, um, now, I'd like to uh, discuss Wendberg um, if we could. Um, We... um, We have, we're in the last section of the book on, on legalizing voluntary active euthanasia. Um, and um, as you know, he sets up the issue um, by saying on page uh, 180 and top of 181, it seems that we do not have a right to be killed if by that we mean that we can an insist as a matter of right that others kill us, willing or not. Surely others would be within their rights in rejecting our request to be killed, which would not be the case if such a request were in fact backed up by a legitimate moral right. And then he quotes um, Peter Williams um, in a a book that uh, discusses the the rights um, of the innocent. And he says, One cannot give a priest a handgun and demand that the priest use it. One might ask or beg, or plead to get shot with a gun or hypodermic needle, but not as an assertion of a right. Um, Remember the biblical case we looked at last week or two weeks ago, um, Saul asking his armor-bearer to do him in. Thus, he says, as a matter of religious or moral principle, I might refuse to accede to a patient's request to be killed, and I would be acting well within my moral rights. Indeed, to coerce me into acceding to that request would appear to be a violation of my rights. All right, that's one dimension of the issue. Okay, um, uh, is that how do we how do we look at that dimension of the issue? Is this a um, ethically uh, determinative uh, matter that that the the right of the person uh, to kill or not to kill has to be respected as well as the um, the person who's asking for the thing. In other words, is that is this a legitimate uh, moral consideration? I think that is a parallel, actually. Yeah. Um, you can't um, make somebody um, uh, terminate a life. I, I suppose it's more complicated than that because if it's commonly, if the state has laws that um that authorized the uh, killing of a person in the case of a, of a heinous crime capital punishment um the the henchman or whatever you want to call him um is in a position to 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 do the procedure and um i mean in a way it's his job in another way um i suppose he could refuse to be hired for that sort of purpose um in other societies, you can't refuse such a thing. You you are hired and you do it, uh, whether you agree or not that this person ought to be killed. There's a lot more to it, of course. That's, I think, a, an important part of, of the question of um, making uh, voluntary active euthanasia legal. Um, what is his basic view? Um, did Were you able to pick that up? There's a lot of material here, but were you able to pick up what his basic view is? Is he... For it or against it, and and how does he argue? How does he come out? Do you do you all do you all recall that? Is it, he he takes you through a lot of territory. What are some of the things that could happen? And notice how careful he is to avoid scary slippery slope arguments. Um, yet he, as you say quite rightly, he comes out against it for the very reason that. It would draw draw in too many other ambiguities. What what are some of them? Not mm-hmm. some. Yeah. And also, what about a patient who changes his mind, or might have changed his mind had he not been um, in a in a coma and so on? That that he he raises that. Um, he he has a term, uh, consensual homicide, which is. Um, he considers it homicide just the same. Um, he says that uh, the law does not permit killing. This is on page one eighty-five. The law does not permit killing even when all of the con- the following conditions are fulfilled: a, the individual to be killed both wants and requests to be killed; b, the person doing the killing does so willingly; and c, no third-party rights are violated. Um, now. There's. Can you think of examples of consensual homicide, um, in, in you know that are not simply, the doctor giving you an, an overdose. I mean, we, we don't do this much anymore. But in, um, in ancient societies and in some modern societies in other hemispheres, dueling um, is is permissible, um, and. Uh, uh, of course, in some cults, you have human sacrifice. Um, there are there are variations on this, but there, there are games where um, death is permissible and so forth. And um, so he says, um, all of those forms of consensual su- suicide fulfill these conditions, yet since each homicide ought not to be legalized, he says, then it follows that these conditions... By themselves are not sufficient to warrant the legalizing of consensual homicide, including euthanasia. All right, that that's one of his uh, his major uh, his major uh, arguments. Um, the 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 argument also that he uses is that um, euthanasia doesn't harm anyone. Um, whereas the acts of consensual homicide do. um, And he dismisses that difference because of the fear of the overall consequences uh, coming in the wake of legalization. I had a small quarrel with that point. I I don't know what he means by euthanasia doesn't harm anyone. Um, It's meant to help the person... um, Whereas a person killed in a duel is not benefited, but harmed. Um, I find such distinctions myself a little arbitrary. Um, depending on what you mean by, by harm, you know, a person can um, simply have a wrong theology of life and can want to be done away with. And that person may think that it's for their greater good. And, it, and even everybody else may think it's for their greater good. Um, but it, it isn't. It's harmful to, if you have a certain theology of life. And then, of course, it's, it's awkward to bring this up, but um, if a person's not a Christian, um, the afterlife for that person is not exactly beneficial. Um, so, I don't know, I, just, I find uh, the um, saying that euthanasia doesn't harm anyone a little bit um, facile. Um, and he seems to think that even uh, now his, he's against the legalization, but for, for, for different reasons, you know, because he says um, if an action can promote the best interests of everyone involved and it doesn't violate anyone's rights. And um, to me, what's lacking there is a, a Christian morality of justice, a Christian concern for justice. And I think that we have um, in, our, uh, in our Christian ethics become much too um, oriented towards individual rights. And now, to be sure, individual rights are crucial, um, but they have to be set in context, and, and the context uh, is much bigger than that. The context involves um, your, um, your society's laws, which ought to be based... Not just on what might be good for a lot of individuals, but on general principles of justice. Um, now, th- I don't want to get too far off the track with this, but when you hear arguments about capital punishment and you hear arguments uh, about legalizing marijuana and, and and this type of argument, very often people are limiting their argument to what works or what's helpful, rather than to what is just. Now, admittedly, justice requires a, a transcendental standard, and the transcendental standard has to be derived religiously. I mean, that's obvious. Um, and uh, countries, uh, ev- which may be very far from Christian uh, consensus, um, are reluctant to, to, to have that kind of argument. But I don't see how you can avoid it at some level. Um, so. I don't believe that Christians in government, for example, should simply plead natural theology as a way to have a point of contact with non-Christians. I think they should stick to their Christian guns, though they should work in, um, in an authentic and, and uh, um, with, with integrity, um, not simply use the law as a preaching platform. But at some point they're going to have to say, I'm against this, not because it might or might not be harmful, but because it's unjust. It's, it's, it's unjust. It's unjust. Um, in, um, in as you know, in ethics there are interminable debates about capital punishment, um, and the issue is often: does it uh, warn would-be killers to have a to know that that's their punishment? Is it a deterrent, in other words? And you can stack up the statistics on both sides pretty well. Um, there are some arguments that. Certain kinds of crime are, are less prevalent in states that have capital punishment. But then there's also the famous uh, case of people who, who don't care. And, um, you know, in England they, they, when they debated this um, at the very speech where um, somebody might have been um, arguing for um, right in front of the gallows uh, for capital punishment based on deterrence, Pickpockets came around and pickpocketed the people listening to the speech, you know. So it just wasn't a deterrent for them. Um, and the issue is not finally whether capital punishment works, but whether it's just or not. I don't want to get into that particular question right now, but it, uh, at some point we have to say that. And I, I, uh, I think he could have strengthened his argument here uh, by doing more than just appealing to um, um, the dangers. Uh, in the wake of legalization, though I quite agree with him that there are some of those dangers. Now, having said this, he, um, uh, he's, he's against most of the slippery slope arguments, and he's against the comparison with the Nazis, you, you saw that. Um, he has three uh, negative fallout arguments. Remember how he handled those? Um, Argument number one, it's feared that voluntary euthanasia once legalized will increasingly lose its voluntary character. Okay, and then he um, he goes into this in in some detail and over on uh, uh, page 189 he says um, especially vulnerable would be the old and the institutionalized to be sure they have earlier signed a euthanasia directive, but that will not by itself guarantee that their eventual request for euthanasia will be an authentic expression of what they then want for themselves. Um, indeed, what people anticipate they want and what they do actually want when confronted by death are often two quite different things. This may happen because as an unnamed former officer of no less an organization, the Euthanasia Society of America is reported to have admitted, very few incurables have or express the wish to die however great their physical suffering may be. Um, the will to live, the desire for life, is such an overwhelming force that pain and suffering become bearable. Um, that's argument number one. Uh, argument number two, these are these you know, negative fallout arguments, in other words, undesirable consequences type arguments. Um, Argument number two, in assessing the consequences of legalized active euthanasia, we also need to take into account those candidates for euthanasia whose lives would be impacted negatively, even though they themselves do not choose euthanasia. Okay, now who are those people? Well, um, he he says that uh, people who are resisting family pressure um, opt for euthanasia, people who are emotionally torn between guilt over not having chosen euthanasia and resentment towards those they view as trying to pressure them into electing euthanasia. They'll feel guilty because they see the benefits that euthanasia would give to them um, and, and and so on. Um, ultimately, he says, they resist this pressure and reject euthanasia, but by no means has the legal possibility of euthanasia eased their dying and contributed to their peace of mind. Quite the contrary. And um, so, you know that one g- goes in that direction. Argument number three: um, It might be the, euthanasia might be the answer to some very tough medical cases. Um, so, um, rather than focusing on the need for improved healthcare systems. Uh, improved treatment of for pain, improved nursing, and so on. Instead, we might feel that we already have, in the form of voluntary active euthanasia, is the answer. All right, and then he goes through that, and um, so on. Argument number four: Legalization of voluntary active euthanasia may engender additional and unnecessary fears and anxiety among the terminally ill. Number five: um, Some doctors will be considerably less hesitant. To inject fatal doses, uh, whenever they deem it appropriate to do so. Um, euthanasia freelancing, he calls it, um, and so on. So, um, he's he's generally quite he's against the legalizing of it, but is suspicious of uh, of um, a misuse of the slippery slope arguments, even though he says there's a place for them, and even there's a place for them in the law. His basic argument then seems to be that um, you uh, have the various conditions for killing a person, Um, The individual to be killed both wants and requests to be killed. The person doing the killing does so voluntarily. No third-party rights are violated, and the killing is in the best interest of all concerned. But, he said, for those very reasons, um, um, when those are fulfilled, he's worried about what will happen if we legalize um, euthanasia. Are there any uh, remarks or questions about uh, Wenberg's presentation here? I'm going to give you actually some, um, s- some laws in a minute about uh, self-determination and so on. Um, but uh, does anybody want to discuss his, his particular arguments? I saw a, uh, a program on French television when we were living over there about... Um, eugenics uh, well it was basically about um, genetic engineering and the same kind of arguments came up here most people were favorable to it except for people like Ellie Wiesel who was on, who was um, on the satellite and he said well I guess scientifically it's okay but um, my problem with it is that I saw what it led to in the Nazi era and um, he, uh, he brings up the Nazi thing and he, co- he considers it Um, uh, partly relevant but not entirely. He says that what it should teach us is that we should value an open society in which ideas are debated. And that wasn't the case in Nazi Germany. Um, But he says once the euthanasia program becomes public knowledge um, then there's less cry of protest and outrage. And um, in an open and democratic society, one would trust that the program never would have gotten off the ground in the first place. So he says, you know, the lesson of Nazi Germany is that you need to have um, in the, the the rationale for euthanasia by the Nazis um, was to some degree financial, but a lot of, to to a great deal of degree, it was ideological. And he he hopes that in a democracy, that could never happen. I, I guess I am not as optimistic as he is. Um, I think that the discussions out there in the state of Washington show that people are, though they're hardly going to go at it for some sort of ideological reason in a bear, in that crude sense of anti-Semitism, uh, they could be driven by an extreme form of humanism. It says, I've got the right over my life. I, I can des- decide when to terminate it. I can decide what's easy and what isn't for my family. Um, and this over- Emphasis on, on, um, on human rights can, can lead to this, this sort of um, carelessness about euthanasia. And as I say, as he says, once the program is there, uh, it's very hard to get out of because you have a lot of people who kind of emotionally are comfortable with that freedom and that autonomy. And, and I, I think it's not a good thing. Yeah. The doors open. To less noble right. uses. Right. Yeah, and I think as far as it goes, it's true. I just wish—I mean, this fellow's a Christian. I, I just wish he had used more biblical arguments for um, the sanctity of life. You know, Perfect. that's one of the wonderful things about a law-ordered society. As long as the law isn't above God or something, the uh, the law is objective enough so that you don't have to agonize over every single thing. You know, when I stop at a stoplight, I don't agonize over you know whether it should be long or short or not there. I sometimes get frustrated, but I don't want to agonize over it. Um, and uh the same with um you know the suicide laws um i think i've told you this already as you know anyway it, it's against the law to commit suicide <laughs> um and uh that means that attempted suicide cases always have to be resuscitated um the doctor has no choice he can't sympathize or agonize or maybe you know it'd be better maybe it wouldn't the law says get this guy back or get, get this girl back And uh, it helps in that case to have such a clear-cut law. Law doesn't cover everything in life, of course. There's a lot of gray areas that it can't can't cover. Yeah, well, that's a very good question. And um, that's something that I think every Christian in every vocation that's part of the world has to wrestle with. But it's particularly difficult in politics and in some some roles. I mean, if you're a businessman and you're uh, selling... uh, you know, brooms. Um, you may get onto some ethical principles here and there, but basically, you're trying to sell brooms and do a good, good do a good job, and you're just not going to get into a lot of transcendental discussions with your with your uh, team. However, in government, you you do. And my answer is now here's where my you know my present thinking is, and I I realize that there's a lot of work to be done, but my answer is that the Christian believes in the legal um, uh, prescriptions that he or she thinks are, are faithful to the principles of justice uh, for biblical reasons. That's the Christian's position. The Christian's strategy may involve uh, using all kinds of material which is sometimes directly related to biblical authority, sometimes only indirectly related. And what I mean by that is that I have no objections for a Christian politician to quote scripture as a reason for doing uh, certain things, but I don't think it's strategically uh, a a good idea to do it all the time and to do it awkwardly, as if there was some uh, restriction in the Bible to quote it all the time. I think a Christian can promote biblical principles um, by appealing to many things that are biblical, but that you just don't quote the Bible. So one of them, of course, is just what he, what Wenberg does is the slippery slope type of thing is a, a legitimate Christian concern because it's a biblical argument. If you read the Bible, you'll find that there's a lot of slippery slope arguments in the Bible. Um, and Wenberg points out that they're even in the law. Um, so a, a Christian in good conscience uh, can appeal to um, you know these these negative uh, factors, uh, the slippery slope argument, um, and he knows that he's doing it for biblical reasons, but he doesn't always have to, sh- to quote the Bible. Now see, that position is different from two others. It's different on the one hand from the theonomy view, which is that you always need to simply apply the law of God, and if people disagree with you, they're just simply wrong, and they ought to be ousted, and, and, and you ought to you know, you ought to just sort of get back to the law of Moses. Um, but it's also different from the pure pluralism of some Christians um, of saying that you know, in church I'm a Christian, but in government I'm a pluralist because you know you gotta live with each other and do the best you can. Because see, I don't think I think that's a a, um, a schizophrenia that you, that a Christian can't live with. A Christian should not be less Christian in his public life than in church life. It's just that there is there are strategic opportunities when you would quote the Bible and others where you just wouldn't have to do that, but you could still stand for the same view. And if somebody called you to the mat on it, then you'd say, yeah, well, I believe this because of God. But you don't always have to bring God's name in, and some cultures will be more comfortable with that, so others will not. You know, American culture up until recently has been fairly open to arguments based on God, it's getting to a place where that's not going to be true so much anymore. Yeah. See, I find that odd. It's either right or wrong. And if it's, if it's wrong, then it's politically wrong as well as personally wrong. Uh, now, the word impose is a, is, a, is a trap, which I think is to be avoided. A lot of people object to Christians standing for Christian principles in government because they consider that it's imposing of you. Well, the, the, the connotation of impose is, you know, like have a Khomeini in there who uh, legislates the latest thing he's received from, from God um, by uh, coercion. Now that, that of course is, is, is absurd and, and Christians don't believe that they, that's their role. But if you mean by impose, per, argue for, uh, seek to persuade about, then uh, a certain kind of imposition is, is fine. That's all we can do. I mean, that's what politicians are imposing all the time in that way. They're, they're, they get up on a soapbox and they say, here's what, what we believe, and here's why I'm for you know, national health, or here's why I'm for um, capital punishment, or whatever it might be. So um, I think that that's position of Cuomo's is a uh, kind of schizophrenic position. Though I, you know, I sympathize. I, I know what he's trying to do. He's trying to say, look, um, I have all these strong beliefs, but you know, we're living in a plural society. Um, that's true as far as it goes, but a plural society should function better as well as be a just society if it's, if it's uh, consistent with your Christian principles. It also doesn't mean that you can legislate everything. Um, the Bible itself in, in the church age does not allow us to legislate Confession doesn't encourage us to to legislate confession. That's to be done through uh, verbal, moral persuasion. The church can legislate confession, it has discipline. But the state is not, that's not the state's job. The state's job is to promote justice in society. Um, It's not unrelated to uh, confession, but it's not a direct legislation of confession. All right. Let's spend a little time on the, uh, the self, well, the, 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 all the uh, legislation about self determination. I promised you I would do that. Um, I'd like, uh, like to begin um, with um, some descriptions of the uh, elective use. Of life-sustaining treatments in internal medicine and um, much of the material that I'm going to use here comes from various medical journals and uh, legal journals and it's part of the ongoing study of um, what the law and what morality and what self-determination need to to tell us in order to come to uh, Uh, to a healthy a healthy society as uh, as you know and I think I told you this last time the um, the patient self-determination act sponsored by um, Danforth and and, and Moynihan what has uh, required becomes effective December 1st 1991 in in a couple of weeks Um, and um, this Federal legislation brings advanced directives uh, to public awareness. Um, It applies to all health care institutions, hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, and so on, Um, and any HMO programs receiving Medicare or Medicaid. And it it requires that all individuals receiving medical care must be given written information about their rights under state law, to make decisions about medical care. And this includes the right to accept or refuse medical or surgical treatments. Uh, They also must be given information about their rights to formulate advanced directives such as the living wills and durable power of attorney for healthcare. And um, institutions must prepare written policies to allow individuals to exercise these rights and will be responsible for documenting in each individual's medical record whatever, whether he or she has executed such an advanced directive. It will not have to force the person to do so. It just has to say whether they have. Um, and um, while uh, increasing access to information about uh, legal opinions in choosing and refusing medical or, or surgical treatment the law does not require individuals uh, to decide. The law specifically states that facilities may not condition the provision of care or otherwise discriminate against an individual based on whether or not the person has executed an advanced directive. This is a bit like um, the, the current debates over uh, abortion counseling. Um, there was a decision that you, you, you can't uh, federally funded abortion clinics cannot counsel. And the concern there was not, I I think, because a a desperate woman coming in shouldn't have some advice. But the concern was not to push that woman to having an abortion uh, when she isn't able to think about it very clearly. And it's the same here. Um, And as I told you, I think, last time, the actual substance of the law is a matter for each state to determine and this is very difficult because there are a lot of things that have come up, and I suspect that many of the states will not meet the deadline. Or if they do, um, it'll be in a very, very cursory form and we will, will continue long after to debate um, you know, how, 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 to, how to implement this. Um, but in any case, um, the written description of state laws uh, will be developed at the state level um, or through state agencies, um, and, and, and so on. Now, the new law does not override any state law which would allow healthcare provider to object on the basis of conscience to implementing an advanced directive. Um, so it's, it doesn't change that. Um, and um, the written information required by the law has to be given out by hospitals at the time of admission. And at our hospital, we're trying to figure out what the best way to do that is. You know, do we just give them a pamphlet? Um, what if it's an admission to the emergency room? You know, do you wake the person up for a second, say, you know, here's your rights. All right, knock them out again. Of course, that's silly, but um, um, it's it's not always simple to just know how to give the person their rights. Um, the federal role in the implementing of the law is going to be probably informal. Uh, The Secretary of Health and Human Services is required to develop a national education campaign to inform the public of the opinion to execute advanced directives and of a a patient's right to participate in and direct health care decisions. And the Secretary is also required uh, to develop or approve national information that would be distributed by providers to inform the public um, about their rights. And the Secretary is also required to assist the states in developing um, the specific written information required in the act. Um, And finally, the Secretary is required to mail information to Social Security recipients and add a page to the Medicare handbook describing the new law. I actually have some of the pending uh, changes that are going to be made in the Medicare handbook. So the, the information I'm giving you is, is, comes out of that and comes out of a lot of other reflection. And um, uh, there's a lot of it. I, I'll, I won't give you you know overwhelming detail, but there's a, there's a lot of very interesting uh, parts to this. Um, now, the current focus um, on the elective use of life-sustaining medical treatment probably was stimulated more than anything else by the the quinlan case about 15 years ago i remember in the 60s there were individual people uh, including a friend of ours who were pushing the living will and and all that but we, we regarded them as a little bit offbeat and fascinating folks and all but and they had their own thing had a cause but um of course now it's not so strange after the quinlan case um quinlan's guardian as you remember was permitted uh, by the New Jersey Supreme Court um, to authorize withdrawal of mechanical ventilation um, even though the court acknowledged the probability that that would uh, result in uh, Karen and Quinlan's death um, but uh, the, the roots of the, of the Quinlan case go way back to um, the framers of the Constitution and, and even to the, the philosophers of the Enlightenment, if you will. Um, the, uh, all of the, Who um, has the right to decide over someone else's life and so on has, uh, has been a part of the, the law of the West. It's not just something that suddenly had to be decided out of nothing. But the, uh, the case's legacy extends to current medical practice and uh, to contemporary patients and doctors. The Quinlan case is a kind of giant metaphor or giant symbol of the right of patients or their surrogates to uh, to choose or or forgo life-sustaining medical treatment Um, now what is current thinking about the elective use of life-sustaining treatments Um, and let's talk about elective use rather than euthanasia um, because it emphasizes that uh, not everything that can be done a patient must be done. Um, well, let me give you um, a couple of uh, uh, a couple of categories. Um, first of all, DNR orders. Um, DNR is it just means do not resuscitate. Um, the best studied decision. To forego life sustaining treatment is the DNR order. Um, the incidence of DNR orders is 3 to 4 percent of all hospital admissions and 5 to 14 percent of patients admitted to the intensive care unit. Um, conversely, 66 to 75 percent of hospital deaths. And 39 percent of death in the intensive care unit ICU are preceded by a DNR order. Now factors that you know you um, can associate with um, the writing of, of DNR orders include, um, of course, old age, um, or the increasing severity of an illness,. Um, Poor pre-admission functional status, um, incontinence, abnormal mental status, or dementia, or all kinds of all kinds of things. Uh, of course, AIDS, um, um, and uh, uh, the, the prognosis of survival. Um, recent surveys of elderly outpatients show that 77% to 82% would want. CPR in their current health state, but only 21 to 38% would want CPR if they had severe dementia, stroke, irreversible coma, or terminal cancer. Um, With with respect to the process of DNR decision-making, the studies show that the patient may only be involved in a minority of cases Estimates ranging from 14 to, to 43%. Oh my, okay. Well, we'll uh, let, me do, let me do a little more of this and then um, we'll have our break. Um, incompetency at the time of do not resuscitate uh, is a major reason uh, that uh, patients don't participate, of course. Um, it appears that at the time patients are admitted to the hospital, they're often capable of of making decisions, but they become incompetent in the hospital before a DNR order is discussed. Um, in any case, this is uh, this is uh, the the trend. This is where most people are um, on on uh, do not resuscitate. Second, um, mechanical ventilation, um, according to PA Singer, Um, there is no published data, there are no published data on the incidence of decisions to forgo mechanical ventilation in general internal medicine practice. Um, A recent study of intensive care units found that life support was withheld from 1% and withdrawn from 5% of patients. Uh, Mechanical ventilation accounts for 23% of withheld and 83% of withdrawn life support therapies. Um, What are the factors associated with this decision? Um, Well, um, a patient with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. um, uh, Therefore, um, the the likelihood of survival is is low. Uh, Prognosis... Um, Well, another interesting variant here is the physician's level of training. Um, They found that residents uh, are more likely to forgo mechanical ventilation than private practitioners. Um, I don't know if that's the dollar raising its ugly head or whether that's because of um, uh, uh, more sophistication or something. Um, One interesting survey showed that 55% of homosexual men with AIDS Mm would want mechanical ventilation um, and a transfer to the uh, intensive care if required for the treatment of um, one of the kinds of pneumonia that you get from, from AIDS or that is AIDS. Um, however, um, <laughs> here I love these studies, this number dropped to 19% if the patient had both that pneumonia and severe memory loss. In other words, people don't want to be saved if they can't think. Um, Another uh, interesting survey uh, of patients um, showed that 90% of patients with all kinds of diagnoses wanted life support um, in their current state of health. 30% would want life support um, if they if, uh, they would be no longer independent when they got out. Uh, and very few wanted it despite a hopeless prognosis. Well, not very few. 16% wanted it despite hopeless prognosis um, and so on. Now, there are many other uh, um, scenarios here. Dialysis, um, um, antibiotic therapy, nutrition and hydration. This is one that uh, we ought to uh, mention. Then I'll do that and we'll have a break. Um, there are no empirical studies Uh, that document the incidence of decisions to forgo artificial nutrition or hydration. Um, And and this is, of course, uh, surprising because um, um, it's been so much in the news. Um, Factors associated with the decision to withhold artificial uh, feeding um, include um, uh, the patient's preference, uh, their discomfort, their life expectancy, the family wishes, and so on. In one study, 41% of physicians believed that informed consent should be obtained uh, for nasogastric feeding. Um, however, doing a chart review uh, shows that patient consent is documented as only 12%, and surrogate consent an additional 14% of the cases of tube feeding. Um, so, this is a, uh, it's very hard to read all, all of that material. Um, on one s- survey, 75% of patients said they would not want to be fed by a tube if they had dementia, if they were demented. Um, interestingly enough, um, uh, no data exists concerning the costs of decisions, uh, to forgo artificial nutrition and hydration. This, this doesn't, just hasn't been studied, but um, you can imagine it has been thought about a lot. Um, okay, why don't, we, uh, why don't we stop there, and um, I will, uh, I'll give us a, a five-minute break, and then we'll come back for more.